Welcome to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Watts. If you want to change your drinking habits and create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, you're in the right place. This podcast explores the strategies I use to overcome a lifetime of family alcohol abuse, more than 30 years of anxiety and worry about my own drinking, and what felt like an unbreakable daily drinking habit. Becoming an alcohol minimalist means removing excess alcohol from your life so it doesn't remove you from life. It means being able to take alcohol or leave it without feeling deprived. It means to live peacefully, being able to enjoy a glass of wine without feeling guilty and without needing to finish the bottle. With science on our side, we'll shatter your past patterns and eliminate your excuses. Changing your relationship with alcohol is possible. I'm here to help you do it. Let's start now. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast with me, your host, Molly Watts, coming to you from uh, a gray, foggy, cloudy Oregon. Looks a little damp out too. This after two really beautiful days this weekend, so I really can't complain too much and won't. Uh, It's the end of spring. What can I say? May is on its way, and I'm really hopeful for some drier, sunnier weather. Today on the podcast, I am just so excited to share this episode with you. I am speaking with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Dr. Fisher is an addiction psychiatrist, bioethics scholar, and author. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he studies and teaches law, ethics, and policy relating to psychiatry and neuroscience, especially issues related to substance abuse disorders and other addictive behaviors. That from his bio, of course. He is the author of a book called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. And it was that book that led me to him and wanting to talk with him. He's also the host of a podcast called Flourishing After Addiction. He brings a very interesting perspective. He is not only someone who studies addiction, being a psychiatrist and and bioethicist, but he also is a recovering alcoholic himself. So his book is a combination of both a rich historical perspective on addiction, but also his personal stories from both his own personal experience and his patients weaved in. So I know you're going to love the book. I enjoyed our conversation because as you will hear, he is also an adult child of an alcoholic like myself. So we had a lot of things to talk about. It's not often I get someone on the show who is a child of an alcoholic who has struggled with their own drinking, who is interested in neuroscience. So obviously, I loved being able to talk with him and just hear what he had to share. Here is my conversation with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Good morning, Carl. Thank you so much for being on the Alcohol Minimalist podcast. I was so excited to connect with you and to have you actually say yes to coming on the show and talking about your book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Such a very interesting and strong topic. And as I shared with you before we jumped on, I also just have so much to talk with you about because we have a lot of shared connections in terms of our history and you have some uh, an interesting personal journey that goes into 
the writing of this book in, in, in and of itself. So welcome to the show and uh, thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Molly. It's good to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. And give just so we could tell people a little bit about this before we even get started on this. I'm talking to you today. It's early in the morning here in Oregon and you are in Portugal. And tell me about why you're there even in Portugal right now. Sure thing. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm in Lisbon, Portugal uh, for a variety of reasons. Honestly, the major professional reason is because Portugal is world famous for its drug policy. Yeah. They had a massive problem with uh, very public drug issues and drug related disorder in the capital, primarily in the 1990s. And then they enacted this really momentous piece of legislation where they decriminalized uh, drugs for personal consumption. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't drive up to the Lisbon port with a boat full of heroin or cocaine, but if it was a small quantity that someone could use for personal consumption, it was not criminalized at all. And even if somebody was recurrently causing problems in a public space, they would get access to uh, treatment. And in the worst case, they would be brought before a non-criminal uh, committee that would mm -hmm. try to help connect them with uh, services that would help them with their problems. There's a lot more we could say about that if you're interested, but uh, I was interested to see it firsthand. Yeah. I wanted to be on the ground uh, because frankly, uh, everyone trots out Portugal as an example of their preferred position. Uh, people on one side of the spectrum say, but you know, Portugal shows that we should do this or that. And on the other side, people say, oh no, no, no Portugal doesn't say that. What they actually say is this. Um, and I wanted to get what the book, what the urge taught me about these topics is it was really useful to get into the intellectual and the cultural history, to get a sense of uh, the, the deep history across multiple fields of study, across multiple ways of understanding a phenomenon. And I wanted to do a little of that with Portugal. But I also have a six-year-old son. I wanted to make sure he had a international yeah. experience. It was a good time with COVID. Uh, people are more comfortable with uh, right. video <laughs> psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, so it just felt like a good time to go and to, to have that experience as a family. So that's a big part of it too. How awesome. How awesome. Yeah. And I love the fact, so yeah, you, you, you kind of wove it in there perfectly. The real, so let's talk about the the urge and the history of our addiction and kind of give me your, what you really wanted to accomplish in terms of writing this book and what you hoped it would accomplish for the world, you know, for putting it out there into the world. What, give me the, 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 the I know it's not easy because there is just, as you said, it's multi-generational, it's multicultural, it's multidisciplinary. You know, there's just a lot of things that kind of come into addiction so how were you trying, what was your goal in terms of writing the book? Well, it was pretty simple in terms of the goal. It was, it was personal. It okay. was the book that I wanted for myself, but I couldn't find. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of great books about addiction. I've benefited from a lot of them. But when I was in early recovery from addiction, I would say about like a year in, I, I had this sense that I was relatively stable. I wasn't worried about like relapsing that day or that week, but I still had this big question in me. I, I went to medical school and then psychiatric residency at Columbia University. And around the time I graduated med school and then went on to further training as a doctor, uh, I 
was living a double life, basically. On, on the surface, I was on top of the world. I had won multiple graduation awards and had gotten into my preferred program, which the, according to some metrics is the best psychiatry training program in the country. And uh, I just thought I was on the way to academic superstardom. But part of that was also me trying to put up a strong front and me trying to prove to the world that I was okay, because I was also really struggling with alcohol. And then a little later with stimulants like Adderall and mm -hmm. cocaine. And so throughout the early years of my residency, I had increasing problems with staying out late, coming in late, uh, mouthing off to my supervisors to the point where uh, my program staged a sort of quasi-intervention. And these people that I had known for years and years because of my medical training basically said, hey, Carl, we, you know, we can tell that something is wrong. Like, it, um, what is it? How can we help? Like, do you need to go into treatment? And I said, I lied and said, it's not alcohol. Um, I know what this looks like, but really I'm just, you know, I'm having trouble with the adjustment, whatever. And so there's more we can say about the problems, but fast forwarding to the solution yeah. is I had a, a manic and psychotic episode that was fueled by alcohol and Adderall. And then I wound up in this sort of funny, unique program called a physician health program. In most states, but not all states have this, where if a physician is having problems with uh, uh, substance use, they get into a sort of voluntary monitored program where there's monitored treatment and monitored urine screens. And so I got, and I went to a specialized rehab for doctors and I got to do all of that. And part of that was in large part because of my own privilege and um, just the luck of being a physician, and having sure. the resources to be able to do all of that. Uh, and so I, I got out of the program and I, I was feeling relatively safe. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling like I was going to relapse that day, but I still had this big question in me that was basically, well, what the heck had just happened to me? Right. Like, what is this thing called addiction? So I went to the scientific and then the medical literature and I found that it was really sort of hard to make sense of. It was polarized and everybody was seizing onto one small piece of the puzzle. Some people say it's a brain disease. Some people say, oh, we should use behavioral economics to figure it out uh so forth and so on there's one book that has like 30 different theories of addiction mm -hmm. and um i just had this intuition that uh taking a broader view and looking at things like history philosophy arts and culture so forth would just be helpful to me it would be helpful to answer that question what had gone wrong in me and what had gone wrong in my family as well uh and so that's what got me started on the whole project yeah so just so, because this show, my podcast is not dedicated to people in recovery. I myself was a habit drinker, but one of the things that I share in common is being an adult child of an alcoholic. So mm. the, um, it, I called my habit oxymoronic because it seemed to make no sense to me after my mother had been in treatment. My mother never, uh, never recovered. She went, she, she passed away of, uh, as the result of an alcoholic binge at the age of 81, which is almost mm. unheard of, as you know, because mm. most alcoholics simply don't live that long. But um, so to say that it's been an ever-present uh, part of my life, I think, is not an understatement. And so when I developed my own uh, disordered use of alcohol, uh, I like I said, it was it was I guess uh, I, I, I only call it oxymoronic because it just seemed to make no logical sense. I had so many reasons to not 
turn towards alcohol, and yet I did. But I also had a lot of stories in my head about the fact that I was genetically predisposed, all of this stuff mm. that I thought that just made it natural for me to desire alcohol more. So one of the things that, and, and in, in my journey, like I said, I never reached the point of being physically dependent on alcohol. But one of the things that I've come to believe, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that before someone develops a physical dependence on alcohol, uh, they they did they develop a psychological dependence on it. So whether the, you know, that it, you really don't get to the point where you're physically dependent until you've created a psychological dependence. And I think that people um, do want to, you know, so we take, whether we take the word addiction to its, you know, I, what I love about your book too, is the fact that addiction from earlier cultures didn't mean necessarily mean physical dependence, right? So right. let's talk about that. But what do you think about that? Do you think that people it's, it's, a psychological problem before it becomes a, a physical problem, and that I guess would fit into what you've said, what you've learned about the history of addiction. Yeah, I think it's important to be very, very careful about those types of distinctions. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we've overemphasized the distinction between a so-called physical and psychological addiction. Um, I, I thank you for sharing your story, and I, I totally respect and agree with your perspective that the, the um, problematic substance use exists on a spectrum. Yeah. And uh, there's one group of alcohol researchers who are working as early as the seventies and eighties uh, who said that um, it's the people who fall short of the extreme and stereotypical addiction who are the underserved majority. The high functioning, uh, right? The <laughs> so many people who have problems yeah. with drinking where their drinking or their other drug use is uh, causing problems at work or causing problems in their personal life or causing problems in their health, but it doesn't feel like that kind of extreme powerlessness and loss of control. Uh, so I think it's really important, really useful to recognize the whole spectrum and to acknowledge that people can have problems at many points along that curve. Uh, but, you know, I'm cautious about the physical versus psychological distinction because, you know, for one thing, like you said, the notion of addiction as it comes to us deep in our culture from philosophers and from theologians hundred years ago is that addiction is something universal to the human condition. Yeah. These are the problems that people like Aristotle, like St. Augustine and many, many others have struggled with for millennium. Actually, uh, we, we have plenty of examples of deadly dangerous addictions, which have nothing to do with the ingestion of a mind altering substance. Right. Gambling is right. one of the most fatal addictions. It has an incredibly high suicide rate. Uh, somebody with a gambling addiction can completely devastate their family's finances and mm -hmm. uh, cause massive multi-generational problems. Uh, and when I looked at the historical record, a case of gambling addiction was the first that I found. Really? In a, wow. in a case from the Rig Veda, which is the, the uh, ancient uh, hymns and texts oh, yeah. of uh, Sanskrit, uh, of South Asian Indian uh, spiritual practice. Uh, it, it, there's a poem that describes a, a really beautiful poem that describes a case of a gambler who loses everything, loses his beloved wife and his, and his family and his connections. And even though he doesn't want to go back, he feels himself pulled back to the dice. Uh, so, 
you know, it was only later when we really medicalized this notion of addiction as if it was the brain being hijacked by a weird chemical. Uh, and also, I should mention, the pharmaceutical companies really leaned into this notion of physical versus psychological dependence right. because because then, then they can fix it. <laughs> because well, and also, and also, the purveyors of um, the addiction supply industries, the purveyors of potentially harmful products like alcohol and like tobacco and like others, could say, "Oh, our our thing." And the opioid manufacturers did this as well. They said, "Oh, our stuff is not really physically addiction; it's only psychologically addiction." That happened with stimulants as well as early as the 1920s. It's a, it's a move that's happened over and over again. Ours is not a bad drug. Ours is a good drug. Those bad drugs over there they cause real physical addiction. Ours is only psychologically addiction. So you have to be really careful about how those stories yeah. are used. Oh, it's it's fabulous. That I love. That. I'm going to quote this from, I'm going to read this from the book because this is kind of what we've just been talking about, but it's because I think that the, one of the, the problems we have as society is because we have, um, you know, just uh, demonized the word addiction so much, right? So that, so that everybody that feels like if you say you're an addict or if you were yes. addicted to something, you're, you're, a criminal. You're, uh, you know, you're a, just an absolute, you're obviously a worthless human being, right? These mm -hmm. are all the things that we have associated with it. So here's from the book, uh, The Urge, The History of Our Addiction. From the beginning, the word addiction was not a narrow description of a medical problem, but an immensely rich and complicated term used to gesture toward core mysteries of the human condition. It was not just about drugs, but about willing and agency, being someone who chooses, and the related timeless puzzle of our seeming inability to control ourselves. It is crucial to be clear in speaking about addiction, but it is also crucial to embrace the paradox around it. Far better to welcome its capriciousness and flexibility than to fight against 500 years of culture. We could look at addiction as a big mistake, a word so vague and variable that it is meaningless and misleading. Or we could look at it as a finger pointing at the moon, something gesturing towards something mysterious, confounding, but ultimately human. I prefer the latter. I love that. I love that. You're, of course, the writing's brilliant, folks, if you haven't. So I'm just sharing that with you so you can understand it. But um, but really, that's I, what I love about that is... Again, you know, I, I do, I think, and what I'm going to read another quote in a bit about something um, that you said about, uh, about your parents, but I think for people that uh, especially grew up as potentially a child of an alcoholic, like I did, there was, I, I say this in my own book, being able to point at uh, my mother and put her in a box as, you know, as an, as someone who was addicted, right. Who, whether I chose to, sometimes I, I say this when I was feeling more compassionate, I would choose the disease model, right. She's sick. And when I was less compassionate, I would see her as, uh, just as a deviant, as someone who was selfish and, you know, out of control, right. All of those things. But as if I kept her behavior in that box, I could, separate it from my own. Right. And so I think that's one of the things that your book, you know, was really helpful and valuable for me to see is how this division of keeping people in silos really, you know, keeps us all from solving the real issues at hand. And those, those issues go 
beyond just, you know, they're, they're, when you talk about all of those things we just talked about, tobacco and, and gambling and alcohol and all of it, right? People are, uh, people are always going to seek out these mind altering <laughs> behaviors. And so we need to figure out how to, to do this in a way that doesn't demonize it, but also doesn't perpetuate a, or, you know, helps us solve a problem that, that does cost money and death and, you know, a lot of issues in the world. Hey, everyone, just a quick break here in the show to talk with you about Sunnyside. Sunnyside has partnered with me and I am super excited to share this company with you. I've actually had the founders on the show before and I will link that in the show notes so you can hear a little bit from them. Sunnyside is an app that helps you cut back on your drinking or simply build healthier drinking habits. I have watched the company grow over this last year and I'm so impressed. They are deeply mission-driven and they are building a service to help millions of people create a healthier relationship with alcohol. And they're doing it without the pressure to quit or feel guilty. So of course, you know it aligns with everything I talk about here at Alcohol Minimalist. Think of Sunnyside as a digital coach that helps you set the plan for the week and provides tools to track your drinks and measure your progress, all while using proven behavior change techniques to create a lasting habit change. It's super easy to start, super easy to stick to, and it includes a 15-day free trial so you can test it out. Really, it's worth checking out. Head on over to sunnyside.co slash minimalist to get started today. Thank you for sharing that, Molly. I, you know, I, I can see why you identified with portions of the book because I had a similar process going on even within my family mm-hmm. where both my parents were alcoholics and my mother, who was a high-functioning university professor, would point at my father and say, I'm not an alcoholic. Look at your father. He's the one who's been to rehab four times. He's the one that is getting the DUIs. I'm different. And I looked at both of them and I said, I'm different from both of you. And in a way that us versus them process was reinforced in my medical training, which again, medicine is a tremendous and valuable tool. It's helped me immensely. I'd like being a psychiatrist. I think there's a lot that psychiatry has to offer, but there were other elements in my training that reinforce that us-them dichotomy. And I start the book when I'm in the psychiatric ward in the middle of my alcohol and stimulant-induced mania. That was the beginning of my journey when I started to see that there wasn't so much of a distinction between myself and my patients, that I could look at the other people, the other co-travelers in the dual diagnosis ward and start to see that, you know, the lines dividing me from, say, people who had struggled for a long time there uh, were, were not so established. They were not so clear. And to, there's tremendous hope and opportunity for change in uh, recognizing that porousness and that flexibility and the, the, the false construction of that us versus them dichotomy. So I am... Um, you know, I, that's something that I think is a daily struggle in a way to, to not 
hold on too tightly to some notion of who I am. Yeah. You know, now I'm uh, 12 years sober in my case. So that means that I should be here. Or I should have accomplished that, or I shouldn't be angry anymore or some other nonsense. Like it's all, it's all part of the same suite of uh, like that quote describes um, the uh, timeless struggle of self-control. Yeah. I know that you, I think you did go through, or you've done AA or you're part of, I don't know. I know you talk about AA in the book and, 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 and I never want to in a positive light is what I should say. And I don't want to ever, I never want to, I always say if AA is helping someone and AA has helped you, then I am nothing but 100% on board, grateful. And I know obviously the program has helped thousands. So if not millions by now, um, my, but I think it's important to understand, and I share this in my book about the history of the AA program, at least in the United States, I can't speak to uh, across the world, but the powerful political um, and legal system uh, push that AA got, which sort of then has made the 12-step program uh, the, you know, the gold standard for treatment and recovery here in the United States. And I the thing that I have always struggled with and in terms of AA, and I would have never gone to an AA meeting myself because I, you know, again, my mom was over here, those people over there. I wasn't like that. I, I, in fact, I was somebody who didn't like to even get, I didn't like to drink to the point of being altered. I just drank, I just drank routinely and habitually on a daily basis. I believed I needed to drink to take the edge off. You know, I, it's like, it, it was way beyond the limits of, um, you know, would have been, would have been considered heavy risk, heavy drinking, heavy use in, in the, um, by the, um, alcohol use disorder spectrum. But the thing that I've struggled with in terms of AA is this, is the disease model itself and the idea that you are powerless and that when you, uh, <laughs> you know, because I, and as a psychiatrist, I'm very interested to hear your take on this because for me, once I understood how powerful my brain was in creating the feeling of desire in and of itself, just by of uh, retraining my brain to think the, think through things differently and to see alcohol in a different way, to really understand it, to educate myself on the science of alcohol. And once I really started to understand that, you know, the, that being genetically predisposed did not mean that I was on a, you know, that I didn't have to drink alcohol, there, there was a lot of stories that I held on to self-limiting beliefs that really fueled my drinking habit for 30 years. And once I understood all that, I understood, I also had the power to change those stories and power to change my relationship with alcohol. So you are somebody who's come through recovery. You have come through and you're 12 years sober and you are clearly a, uh, an intelligent and you know, highly trained physician and somebody that's, that's well-versed on the brain. So you, you, do you, I mean, I, I also know you have a spiritual, you know, you have a spiritual, um, component to your recovery. True. Yes. But yes. he's nodding folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but do you believe that you are powerless or do you believe you are powerful in your own, your own brain? Yeah, I think it's both. I, I, you know, it's such an important set of questions and confusions you bring up. 
that's something I struggled with too myself is uh, ideas about disease and ideas about this thing that I supposedly had. Mm-hmm. And if there's any sort of primal sin of the medical uh, perspective on addiction, we could trace it back to the American Revolution and perhaps even earlier. Mm-hmm. I would say it's making addiction into some sort of thing, as if it's like a bug, like it's a virus or it's a bacterium that you catch. And there's, there's a jargon term for that, which is essentialism, which is to say that it's an essence. It's like a thing separate from me. Um, and there's more we could say about that, but the, you know, you brought you talked about. Uh, the way that our treatment system has become de facto one size fits all that when most people go for alcohol or, or other drug treatment, they wind up in a 12 step based program and they are told that there's usually this is changing a little bit, but usually they're told there's one way. If you don't go to AA after this, you, you won't make it. If somebody has legal problems, they could be mandated to yeah, 12 step programs. It used to be court ordered, right? To 12 And it still is. Yeah. And, there, and there are um, different, because part of my scholarly work is on ethics and law as it relates to psychiatry and neuroscience. Right. There are different court interpretations about whether that's even legal, but it still it happens every day. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, one really fascinating discovery I made in the book that I never learned about in medical school and I never learned about in my own recovery was the complicated relationship between the treatment industry and AA or the 12 steps as such. The early founders of, 12, of the 12 steps said, uh, well, Bill Wilson in particular said, we don't think that alcoholism should be described as a disease. Mm. The, the disease model was something that grew up sort of in relationship to, but not from the notion of the 12 steps. And, uh, there was this sort of treatment industrial complex and the words of one Senator who was actually in recovery, who was part of this move and then later had concerns about it. But there's this treatment industrial complex that grew up sort of adjacent to AA, but it wasn't quite AA. A lot of people were in AA who were in the, the treatment programs administering the care. Uh, but you know, the, the, the treatment program itself wasn't technically part of the 12 steps. It gets very complicated, but the point of all this is to come back to your question about powerlessness. Um, and I think there's a way that the notion of powerlessness has been institutionalized in certain treatment settings as a method of coercion and control and a one size fits all model that doesn't always serve everyone. In a way it was worse in the eighties and nineties when, um, I have one quote from the book from the head of a a major treatment center in the eighties who said, I can tell you, I can guarantee you, if you don't go to AA after you leave here, you'll never make it. We just know that's not true. And even worse, we knew back then that it wasn't true. And when I say we, I mean the medical and research enterprise, that there was good research on the fact that um, people with alcohol problems had many different pathways of recovery. And some people recovered through an abstinence-based program, but others didn't. And um, we do people a tremendous disservice when we elide those differences and we, we obscure that diversity. So I'm not trying to dodge your question. I, you know, for me personally, I, I, my addiction was about a feeling of powerlessness for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had an experience of constantly working to discipline myself and reading self-help books and embarking on these individualistic projects of self-improvement. And it just did not work for me. And what I needed was more humility and more help 
from the outside. I needed other people. I needed to, in a way, to use a spiritual term, to surrender more to that sort of system. But there are a lot of people who are not privileged white men who don't need that, who don't need to uh, downsize their ego in themselves. And they might need a different set of ideas or considerations. But I think powerlessness is ultimately a spiritual concern and it depends on one's uh, spiritual commitments. It's not, it's not really a medical idea. So the 12 steps are very, like I said, they're very, they're, they're more um, religious based and God based in terms of spirituality. I don't frown down on, and spirituality, because I think that spirituality is a big part of being in, you know, a uh, more positive cognitive mental state in general, right? I think that you have to, in the book, I don't know if you're familiar with the abstinence myth, if you've ever read, read Dr. Mm. Jaffe, but he talks about the, the whole idea of basically addiction being, you know, different levels, whether it's medical and spiritual and psychological, all of these, you know, different facets of addiction, but also that again, that the recovery system has, focused on the idea that we have to be abstinent, that that's the, you know, that the focus is on the the substance as a, as opposed to treating the underlying issues of why someone's to turning to a mind altering drug in the first place, right? We mm-hmm. have to understand and we have to be able to find out what's going on that's making us want to <laughs> drink yes. in the first place. Yeah. Um, I, in your book, you said people use drugs for reasons. The banality of that statement is matched only by our constant lack of mindfulness to it. The message screams from the pages of addiction memoirs. So again, it's like, we have to understand, we have to get at the core reason. And that's really why I'm doing what I'm doing as and talking to people before they get to the point where they, you know, whether, again, we don't need to worry about whether or not there's, they need treatment or in their recovery, or if they're just, they've just got a habit that doesn't serve them and they're using alcohol. And this is what I talk about a lot, using alcohol to try to buffer away emotions and trying to solve emotional issues with alcohol is not something that is ever going to lead to a peaceful relationship with alcohol or a healthy, if, if, you know, whether it's, or any other type of mind altering behavior, you have to be able to, uh, you know, to, to solve your emotions in a, in a way that, and I talk about doing it with, you know, really understanding the connection between how my own thinking causes my, how I feel about things was really pivotal for me. I never really understood that cognitive, call it cognitive behavioral therapy to some degree, but that whole idea, I never connected the dots. I always wanted to look outside, blame the circumstances of my life for how I was feeling, as opposed to understanding that I had a choice every day to make about applying my own judgment to the circumstances of my life and how I applied that judgment was really, is really how I feel, right? Is it, it, it determines how I feel in the world. And so that whole idea of really understanding the underlying core values of why someone turns to a drug, turns to alcohol. Do you believe that that's really for you was understanding? Cause you're obviously, yeah, you were, you know, from the outside, you looked like somebody that had everything in the world going for you, right? Everything in the world. So understanding what was driving you to turn to try to change how you were feeling with the drug? Yeah. One, one thought that comes to mind is that I, I did do a lot of work on understanding uh-huh. and even went into 
pretty intensive psychotherapy with a well-regarded fancy Ivy league psychotherapist. And we, we concocted all of these existential explanations for why I was drinking and it didn't help me that much. So the, the why is not always useful, but I do think it is really useful to change our yardstick, you know, or as you said, our yardstick for how someone is doing in whatever you want to call it, whether it's recovery or resolving a substance problem uh, has been abstinence. And that's really misguided. And it's only very, very recently that the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, for example, has come out and said that this is not the only yardstick and we need to do better research and we need to uh, find other ways of measuring human flourishing and how people are actually doing in their lives. So what if we, for example, made our yardstick um, someone's happiness, is their functioning at work or the relationships? Uh, and that in a way, that's that's an important individual treatment change mm-hmm. that I think the medical field is only now starting to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of inertia working against that. Um, and it's an important societal change that is starting to happen in our commonly held cultural ideas about what it means to resolve a problem with substances. Uh, and also in our policy decisions and things like harm reduction, the whole notion of harm reduction, for mm-hmm. example, is the idea of saying, um, rather than controlling somebody's use, our yardstick is how is someone doing? Mm-hmm. What would any positive change look like? And it's uh, it's long overdue because again, people were doing this work, that, you know, depending on how you look at it, centuries ago. Uh, but yeah, I have a lot of hope for um, looking in a more careful way about what actually matters, what is actually useful to somebody's life in treatment in their personal lives. And, and otherwise. So it's, it is, I think it is really important to get beyond the sort of service level idea of just controlling use as if that would solve the problem because it just, it just doesn't. Yeah, I know. And I know, like I said, I know your work is much more broad spectrum and you're talking about all different types of addictions and all different types of uh, issues and opioids and, you know, all of that, which is a very, complicated. <laughs> it's a lot of, there's a lot of um, perspectives and a lot of different forces at will to try to, that are trying to steer the ship, you know? So it, it's, it does make it uh, a, a continuing and ongoing challenge. It will be, I, I suspect uh, if your book is any indication, I don't know that 500 years from now, there won't be somebody else writing about a book about addiction that will cover all of these years, because I don't know that it's going away anytime soon. Um, but I couldn't it, agree more. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I don't think that addiction is something that ends. I don't think that substance problems are something that ends. I think that everybody has some small portion of it, at least everyone has the experience of struggling with self-control could be carbs, could be work, could be the internet, uh, could be self-esteem, uh, money, you know, choose your poison. But, uh, you know, all of that investigation I did about the broader cultural historical policy questions. I, I want to mention that I did all that for myself. I did that because it mattered to me because it was actually useful to how I made sense of my own problems that um, we can see in those broader social responses, the way 
people have struggled with addiction epidemics for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, if we look at that, we can see reflected the way people make sense of self-control mm-hmm. and see the way the people make sense of their struggles to control their habits, to control their alcohol, to control their use, to make sense of it in the context of systems of treatment or economic systems that are producing potentially addictive products. Uh, and so uh, that's why I wove in the personal story as well is to, is to be rigorous about constantly returning it back to what actually matters, what matters for me, what matters for my patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as I said, a beautifully written book, um, I will link it in the show notes folks. So you can go find it. Uh, and it, I think, Wow. I just appreciate you, uh, having the conversation with me this morning and talking about my, all of the offline stuff that is uh, a part of this conversation, because it is, you know, there is a lot to talk about when it comes to this, uh, to the human brain and to understanding human behavior and to understanding that across centuries and across cultures. And I think that, if anything, what I got out of this, what I really, yes, I agree. The story is hopeful. The, the, the vision is hopeful and, you know, for people who are struggling with their alcohol use, uh, there's, you're not alone, right? This is, this is, this is a time honored story and you're not broken. You're not diseased. You're not too sick to figure out your own relationship with alcohol. And, um, you know, I just appreciate you, Carl, for being here with me and talking about the urge, our history of addiction and your own story as well. Thanks so much, Molly. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Minimalist podcast. This podcast is dedicated to helping you change your drinking habits and to create a peaceful relationship with alcohol. Use something you learned in today's episode and apply it to your life this week. Transformation is possible. You have the power to change your relationship with alcohol now. For more information, please visit me at www.mollywatts.com.